Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm talking with Jan Nok Anji, a professor at California State University at Monterey Bay, about ties that bind cultural identity, class, and law in Vietnam's labor resistance, published in 2013 by the Southeast Asia Program at Cornell University. Angie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Why did you write History of Labor Organizing in Vietnam? Well, first of all, I would like to thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my scholarship on this book that is truly a labor of love. Um, this is essentially a 10-year effort, which puts workers' voice at the center stage of labor management state relations. And I sought to understand um, labor activism as the hallmark of Vietnamese history, from French colonial rule in early 20th century to 21st century of one-party socialist state system. So um, you asked me why I write history of labor organizing in Vietnam. Um, I, when I was working on my um, dissertation, I was uh, doing field work in Vietnam for almost a year, and I was traveling throughout Vietnam. And um, at that point, I was looking at the role of the the, the, the development of state um, in Vietnam, and I interviewed um, factory owners um, of all types of ownership. Um, ranging from state-owned to um, cooperatives to joint stocks. And I was so intrigued and moved by the toils that female workers endured um, um, in all the factories that I visited. So um, so since then, um, after the dissertation, my focus has been geared more towards labor, all aspects of labor. Um, working conditions, labor rights, labor resistance, and my ongoing work on labor migration um, transnationally. Um, I think it's important to write labor history um, because it sheds light on current struggles. That's what I've been finding. This book that I wrote um, now three years ago, I think still has a lot of um, relevance and currency in helping me understanding um, ongoing current um, uh, developments, events. So so it is important uh, to shed light on current struggles. It also shows um, the power of historical legacies. As I mentioned, this book um, examines labor activism back to French colonial rule in early 20th century. And I found that kind of um, historical legacy continues to be true um, um, of to you know the 21st century, um, and 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 those legacies continue to be very very powerful. And thirdly, it it also helps to show um, the motivational power, um, the fighting spirit of of workers, in particular migrant workers, um, who come from revolutionary places in Vietnam. Um, quite a few chapters in my book um, focus on migrant workers, especially chapter five on workers in FDI factories, foreign direct investment um, factories, and chapter six on private factories and underground uh, factories. So um, history is very significant. We'll work our way through some of the history shortly and also come into the current struggles. But before we do that, maybe we can pick up on some of the keywords. So you uh, you signal the importance of um, studying labor, but you approach it in a particular way. So one of the ways that you do that is through this term cultural identity. Yeah. Uh, in what ways does cultural identity affect how labor organizes in Vietnam and what do you mean by cultural identity anyway? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, um, so... Cultural identity 
includes factors that essentially identify who you are and, 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 and what binds you um, with others. Um, it, it means, um, in, my, in my book, I focus on the, um, the native place factor, where you're from, uh, what is your birthplace, and that is significant because a lot of the workers that I interviewed um, or, or um, read up their, their narratives are migrant workers. And if you know, um, in uh, modern-day factories, a lot of those workers coming from the countryside, uh, rural areas or rural districts. So, um, so, so their native place, their birthplace is very important because they bring the, the cultural heritage, they bring the historical legacies with them to, uh, to the workplace. So that's one factor of um, cultural identity. The other factor is gender. And, and, and as I demonstrated throughout my book, um, a lot of strike leaders, um, were women. Um, and, and they, they look up to each other and they, um, learn from each other. So gender is a very important, um, cultural identity factor in my book. Um, the third, uh, cultural identity factor is ethnicity. And in, um, chapter I'm sorry, in chapter two in particular, um, ethnicity is a very, very important factor because I, I, I demonstrate in there the solidarity of different ethnicities in class moments, um, which I explain in, in a little while. So um, ethnicity is also a very important cultural identity factor to explain what's behind um, labor mobilizing. And um, last but not least, at least in my book, um, religion is also a very important um, cultural identity factor. And in chapter two also, I found um, um, religion to be a very important factor that brought people together and, and how in class moment people transcended um, um, religion to, to fight. It is very important to understand these cultural identity factors because these social ties enable labor mobilization, leading to class moments in times of crisis. So um, workers utilize what cultural resources are available to them at particular historical context. So not all of the cultural identity factors um, appear in all of the uh, strikes, all of the uh, fights that I, I featured in my book. For example, Native place, where you're from, basically, um, uh, their birthplace, is central primarily for migrant workers who migrate from their hometowns, villages, to work in um, factory towns. But native place is not important for local workers because they're right there. They, they, they basically um, commute um, from home to work, and then they return home, you know, um, um, in the evening. Um, unlike migrant workers who stay in um, um, rental places, dormitories, if you will, and in exactly in those spaces that they bond with each other based on where they come from. Another example um, of, of some um, cultural identity factors are important, but not in others, is ethnicity and also um, uh, religion. These two factors uh, come into play um, very, very powerfully in Chapter 2, um, looking at the history of um, uh, labor um, between um, 54 and 75. Um, in that case, um, ethnicity and religion play a very important role um, in the two cases that I would love to share with your listeners. Um, the Vimitex case, the 1964 case, um, the class moment there, and the case that I really, really appreciate, which is the Eagle Battery case, um, both of them reflect very well how workers bonded together based on their ethnicity and religion and reflected that um, in their class moments. I was just going to say, perhaps before going into those cases, um, mm -hmm. could you uh, say something a little more about what a class moment is and, and why class moments matter for your story and, and then... I go into those two cases. Yeah. When you talk about labor resistance as a topic of this class, such as strikes, you have to consider um, collective action that happens during times of crisis um, and the many reasons for, for crises um, throughout the book. I'm talking about the death and injuries of fellow workers, physical abuses, um, repeated violations on labor rights, um, subhuman treatment, 
um, fleeing owners, the cicada factories, wartime brutality, um, underfunded social um, uh, benefits, discipline, so on and so forth. Um, when faced with those crises, um, workers, I argue, already bonded by their cultural ties or cultural identities, as I suggest and explained a little bit earlier, based on where they come from, their native place, based on their gender, based on their ethnicity, based on their religion, they already bonded um, um, on those cultural factors. When faced with those crises, they went through the whole long struggle. It's not easy to come to class consciousness. But when they faced with those crises, they, 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 they struggled, they fought, and, and they became aware of belonging to a particular class, in this case, you know, working class, and they became aware of their common goals, common interests, with workers of the other gender, of the other religion, of the other ethnicities, and some extent nationalities. At which point, then they develop class consciousness during those, I would call, class moment. I'm sorry, it's a little bit long. Oh, that, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Can you move from that to offer a um, offer a case study? So you mentioned the Eagle Battery case and the Vintage yeah. case. Uh huh. So um, if you look at it chron- in chronological order, um, the uh, the 1964 Saigon Vimitex case would uh, go before the uh, the Eagle Factory case. Um, so let me just quickly go over the uh, 1964 Saigon Vimitex case. Um, they're both in Chapter 2. So um, this is a very interesting case. I, I had a great fortune um, of interviewing um, two Hua ethnic Chinese in Vietnam, um, they, um, they're one of the uh, 54 ethnic minorities in Vietnam. And, um, um, they, um, back in, um, that period, they played a very important role in labor organizing. So I was able to interview two wonderful, wonderful, um, Hua ethnic Chinese, um, labor organizers. And they were both, um, they still are. They're still both, uh, Communist Party members. So this case is fascinating because Vimitex, um, the name itself is interesting. Um, v, Vimitex, V-I-M-Y-T-E-X. That's the name. But it's like a combination of um, three different concepts. V, V-I means Vietnam. M-Y means American. And Tex means textile. So this was the largest textile mill in the South. Of Vietnam, um, established in 1960. Um, when I mentioned the South, I meant uh, I, I mean uh, below the 17th parallel um, before the reunification of Vietnam in 1975. So all of these, you know, Chapter Two took place before 1975. Uh, all the, the, the mobilized thing. So this factory was established in 1960 with equipment and materials imported from the U.S., Japan, and Taiwan, basically uh, U.S. allies. And it employed about 2,400 workers. Most of them were Hua women, ethnic Chinese women. And this factory is important because it later on became Vietnam factory or Vietnamese victory factory under the communist um, government, um, which is another case that I took up in Chapter 4. So, um, significance of this in terms of class moment and in terms of cultural identity, um, here we go. Um, so, in, 19, um, in 1962, um, Vimitex workers basically invoking um, um, the stipulations of the South Vietnamese um, 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 government, the um, Republic of Vietnam Labor Code, to demand for their rights, such as wage, collective bargaining, work hours, work conditions, and paid vacations. And um, when the conditions, when the demands did not um, get heard, they went on strike um, in um, August and November of, um, of 63. So in 64, uh, 1964, 800 of them were fired. In, in um, a couple of months later, um, 
So the first, the first firing took place in April. The second firing took place in August. Over 1,800 workers lost their jobs when management locked them out. So the, the, you have to understand the, 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 uh, it, it, the situation back then was a very, um, um, it's, a, it's a raging war, um, raging Vietnam-U.S. war. And there was a strong presence of um, soldiers and police force um, throughout the country, uh, throughout, throughout the South, basically. And the police used force to suppress this strike. So throughout the August 1964, workers took turn rallying in front of the, the offices of the Labor Department um, and the Saigon newspapers. And all of these events um, leading up to a m- moment, a momentum for strikes in other industries that spread throughout Saigon, which led to a general strike um, on September 21st, to 22nd, 1964. So um, I consider this a class moment because at which point this predominantly Hua factory uh, workers allied with King workers in other um, sectors, in other uh, factories um, to fight for their right. So in my book, I, I discovered, I mean, I um, described uh, talked about archival materials um, showing that Hua workers in nearby uh, factory in the Vinotexco textile factory hoisted their Chinese banner side by side with Vietnamese banner to protest against the suppression of Vimitex workers, in, in a sense, engaging in a sympathetic strike with Vimitex workers. Okay. There's one interesting fact that I got from my moving, moving interview with the uh, Lu Gui, she, uh, she was an underground Hua labor organizer who, who was embedded in uh, Vimitech's um, factory. And she told me that back then, um, she was able to not only encouraging Hua activists um, uh, and, Viet- and King workers to join, but she was able to recruit um, a bus driver who was a Hua who supported the strike and then uh, transported workers to the strike location instead of going to work in the factory. So it, it, um, it, 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 it shows this kind of a cross-ethnicity solidarity um, um, in, in this particular case. And then after that, um, she was exposed, and then another um, Hua labor organizer, the second one that I interviewed, Mr. Ha Tang, um, stayed behind to uh, continue with his um, labor um, organizing. So, um, as a man, he, um, he, um, he was able to roam around as an electrician and, and continue to mobilize, um, workers, King and Hua, to support the strike. So that, that, that's an example of a, a very important case, a very important factory that spearheaded sort of, um, um, yeah, spearheaded the, the general, um, strike in September of 1964. So that case gives us a good sense of how workers mobilize in, in certain respects. W- one feature of their mobilization that you point to in the book is that as early as the 1930s, workers started to use and increasingly relied on the language of law in their petitions mm. and demands. Why mm-hmm. does this emphasis on uh, legal language and protocol interest you? I would love to, 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 to say a little bit about the Eagle Battery case of 1971. In fact, that case will also get at your question about the use of law, because Excellent. the use of law um, uh, um, has been uh, taking place um, back to French colonial time. It's not just um, a recent um, contemporary time. So... Um, I'm really struck by this 1971 Eagle Battery case because it, it shows the significance of not not just um, gender and ethnicity, but it also shed light on on religion in labor organizing and protests. So, um, and I mentioned the law um, in this case also. So th- th- this factory is also <laughs> extremely interesting. Um, again, also in chapter two. Um, Eagle Battery Factory um, was established in 1951, employed about um, 650 um, workers. Um, most were local Hua female residents staying in Saigon, Jialun area. Most were Buddhists. Okay, um, 
But the, the, the significant, the historical significance here is that during the raging U.S. Vietnam War, this factory was um, the sole um, supplier of flashlight batteries for the um, whole of South Vietnam and also for the South Vietnamese Army. So um, class moments happened twice here. Um, the first wave took place in March of 1971, and the second case took place in um, October of 1971, staged by both Hua and King workers. The, the, the religion, the significant, um, the interesting um, um, thing about this case is about um, the religious uh, factor that, 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 um, that, that played a very important role. Now, um, in this case, um, the, the organizers, uh, were Catholic. Um, all of the workers, most of them, were Buddhists. So um, I found um, really, really fascinating role. I interviewed um, the two left-wing um, Catholic priests and um, um, the uh, liberation theology um, wing of the, the, the of the Catholic Church in Vietnam at the time, and they call themselves um, Thanh Lao Cong, which is a Vietnamese word for Catholic Youth Worker um, Activist, TLC. So I interviewed um, the former um, uh, Catholic priest and a um, couple of um, TLC, Catholic Youth Worker Activists. And they were the ones who were behind the, the mobilizing, um, um, the organizing of, of, of the strike. And they played fantastic role um, in, 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 um, 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 organizing them and protecting them using the law. Okay, so um, uh, I'll let your readers to read the the chapter to see the details of the book to see the the two waves of of, of this strike. Um, first wave twenty three days, um, uh, March of nineteen seventy one. Second wave thirty four days, um, from October to November of nineteen seventy one. Um, but the um, it, um, in, in, in both cases, um, the, um, um, the TLC activists um, appealed to the South Vietnamese rule of law to protect workers and pr- to promote justice. Um, they, they appealed to um, the, the, um, the law of the South Vietnamese at the time to protect strikers. And they even appealed to um, the parliament uh, members at the time. Limited outcomes in this case, um, um, but 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 nevertheless, um, um, the workers got the um, the bonus for that, which is um, you know um, that is a well known um, Vietnamese uh, Lunar New Year. Um, it happens most often. You know, Lunar Year changes the date every time, every year. So um, it often happens in in, in February. So workers um, always expect. Um, the kind of bonus for the Lunar New Year, so they can bring home, they can they can uh, celebrate um, the Lunar New Year. So in this case, they got it; they got the bonus for that and overtime compensation. Um, however, they they uh, they didn't get you know other demands, and um, the management fired um, all of the strike leaders. So, um, in response to your question on the law, even back then, um, workers lodged a formal legal complaint with the Saigon Labor Department, um, again, with limited success, but, but they, but they um, appeal to um, legal protocol, to the law, to fight for, for their rights. In 1975, with the end of the war, Vietnam was reunified, and in Chapter 3, you take up the discussion with the reforms from 1986. Can you ex- mm-hmm. briefly explain what happened? then and, and thereafter to set the scene for the chapters that follow? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> this is a tough question to, to, to really um, um, summarize um, such a long, long period of um, cycles of policies and reforms in Vietnam after 1975, um, um, punctuated by short-term retreats. So, um, again, I would invite your your readers to listeners to look at chapter three with more uh, expression, but 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 just to highlight some of the important periods. Um, so, I, I I would like to um, sort of um, um, put out these uh, periods because um, it, it's easier to understand. So, between 1975 
um, the end of the Vietnam-U.S. war. Vietnam was reunified, as you said. Um, for the first five years, 75 to 80, the socialist government um, expanded its um, original um, command economy. Basically, the state um, controlled everything um, in, in, in the economy, um, from raw materials to production to the distribution of the final products. Um, so they, they, the, the state essentially expanded this model, the Soviet-style command economy, centralized economy, to the vanquished South. So totally um, under the same command economy. A lot of backfire, a lot of pushback, um, which then gave rise to um, the so-called hybrid um, transitional model between 80 and 85. And that was this period was characterized by, um, on the one hand, concessions to the market economy type um, transactions um, that were beyond government officials control. But yet, on the other hand, the government still tried to preserve the uh, Soviet-style central planning model, so hence hybrid transitional model with back and forth, back and forth. But um, 1986, um, especially um, uh, um, legalized in the Six-Party Congress, which last for, lasted for five years, 1986 to 1995, um, the... Um, the government, the Communist Party, basically legalized um, private interests um, in the free market system and legalized all the so-called uh, fence-breaking activities, which is um, read my chapter to know what they are, um, um, still with public interest. So since 1989, the state has called itself a, quote, market economy with socialist orientation. As you can tell, the the inherent embedded um, contradictions in that name. Um, this is a you know one party state, but with full fledged market economy with socialist orientation. So this kind of um, um, orientation underlies all of the contradictions that I um, argued in in throughout all of my chapters. So so since 1986, basically the the government um, recognized. The shortcoming of the um, command um, command economy um, and legislated policy that moved Vietnam to the market economy, and um, in nineteen eighty nine, it, it is an important year when 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 Vietnam called itself market economy with socialist orientation, due in no small part to um, the disintegration of the Soviet bloc and the collapse of the um, Eastern European countries. Uh, or Eastern European markets, um, that basically that that was where the socialist government uh, relied on um, in terms of um, um, exports and loans um, before before the market system. So um, since then, since 1989, um, Vietnam has been opening up to um, capitalist system, the market system. Um, Japan, um, countries in ASEAN, um, European Union. And in 1994, um, the U.S. Clinton lifted the um, trade embargo, um, um, basically um, um, allowed Western capital to enter Vietnam. 95, um, U.S. reestablished diplomatic ties with, um, with Vietnam. And uh, in 2000, um, U.S. signed the bilateral trade agreement with Vietnam. So uh, that all of those things culminated in um, 2002. Um, Vietnam joined. Um, uh, let me see. Um, 2007. I'm sorry. In 2007, when Vietnam joined the WTO, and since then it basically opened the floodgate to um, you know global capital um, investment. And in at that period. Um is the subject of the remaining chapters of the book, which you organize around different types of employment that labor resistance engages with, whether someone's employed in a state-owned or equitized mm-hmm. enterprise, whether mm-hmm. they're employed in a foreign direct investment factory or yeah. in a private domestic factory, factory or an underground operation. Let's mm. briefly deal with each one of these, starting with... Um, uh, state-owned enterprises and 
equitized enterprises. So what's an equitized enterprise and what kinds of worker agency did you identify in those places? Yeah, okay, good. Um, so um, I, 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 um, I just re- uh, briefly gave you some sort of a chronology of the um, political economy of Vietnam after 1975. And there's a, a one very important year that, um, that um, um, can shed light on Chapter 4, which is about um, um, resistance of state workers. In other words, um, in, 19, in, in 2002, um, the state, um, well, the, the, just to situate that in the chronology, the 2002 is right after um, the bilateral trade agreement with the sign with the U.S. So in 2000. So in 2002, um, the Vietnamese state um, was forced, um, no doubt, by the U.S. and the neoliberal um, global system, IMF and World Bank, to privatize um, um, Vietnam's um, state-owned enterprises um, throughout 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 the economy and also in the military. Um, so the the public sector went from employing sixty percent of workers in two thousand, right before the equitization, to only twenty percent of workers in two thousand nine. So let me just briefly explain what I mean by equitization. So, equitization in Vietnamese is called Go Phan Hoa. Go Phan Hoa. It's, um, it's an ideologically correct way to express the transfer of um, public assets to the private sector in a socialist country. Uh, it's essentially privatization of state-owned enterprises, but they cannot say that because they're still a socialist state. So, so they, they, it, it is, um, what you call the, um, um, it's, um, it's hyperbole. Um, it, 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 um, it's an ideologically correct way to say it. So, so state managers, um, um, supposed to, um, determine the value of these state-owned enterprises and, 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 and sell shares to workers at discounted prices to make sure that workers can become co-owners of the factories that they used to work years and years and years before. Um, in a sense, creating joint stock companies. And in Chapter 4, I featured many, many factories, um, 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 uh, many equitized factories, um, uh, um, who, I mean, in, in those factories, um, state workers um, resisted um, the system that, that robbed them of their rights. Um, one of the cases is the, um, the Bicycle, um, equitized, um, biomedical company. Um, their, their, their class moment, um, the photo of their class moment, um, beautifully, um, um, demonstrates on my book cover. If you recall, um, the, um, the banners, um, that the workers, uh, put, um, on the book cover. Um, say um, a lot of things about about how the state workers um, appealed to the socialist um, contract that they were supposed to sign with uh, the state, and the state was supposed to um, um, comply or honor that, but they didn't do it. The state didn't do it. So, um, so back to the equitization uh, process, um, the the redundant. State workers, so-called, um, so-called redundant state workers, were laid off in this process, and they were supposed to, to buy the, to be able to get these um, um, these um, stocks at discounted prices. But because it's so poor, they they needed money um, to make ends meet to put food on the table. So therefore, um, therefore, um, there exists this, this phenomenon called selling young rice, bán lúa non. In Vietnamese, selling young rice, meaning that these workers sold their shares at low prices or short sales, if you will, uh, back to state managers and private investors. So at the end of the day, these formerly state-owned enterprises or now became equitized or joint stock companies are now owned by um, state managers and private investors, no longer um, state workers. So that's the context for equitized um, uh, equitization process. In Chapter 4, uh, BCCO is um, one case that I mentioned, and there are many, many other cases um, that, that um, I would invite the, the listeners to, to read. 
and especially the uh, the very interesting case um, called the Hot Christmas. I'm just trying to turn my page to that case. Um, the Hot Christmas strike um, in the Vietnam textile, and that took place in 1993. And this case is special. It took place before the acquisition um, um, period in 2002. It is important because if you um, recall the uh, Vimitex case in 1964, the one that 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 um, uh, spearheaded the general strike in 1964, that was the same factory, the same factory, same location, but different ownership. So if you fast forward from 1964 to 1993, now you have, you know, the Vietnam textile. After 1975, under the socialist regime, um, before the, um, um, even before a strike, as uh, uh, the, the, the strike was even sanctioned um, in Vietnam, these state workers staged a one-day sit-down, hot Christmas strike. Um, this is a fantastic case. It 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 shows um, not only the significance of cultural identity, but it shows um, historical knowledge, making use of what what these older migrant workers understood about um, about um, historical legacy, the the Vietnam U.S. War, to fight against the South Korean um, owner of this um, joint stock company. Let's turn now to foreign direct investment factories. In those factories, strikes are relatively frequent. Why is that so? Yeah. Okay. So that 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 that's a good question. Um, kind of a common question, actually. Um, so my my uh, my my argument here is that um, yes, you see that statistically, but why? So um, I I argue that ideologically, um, there's no contradiction at work. In a socialist state, when workers rise up against exploitative capitalists, right? Um, they're not rising up against the government. They're not rising up to overthrow the government. They're rising up against exploitative capitalists, which is playing right into the, um, the socialist, um, rhetoric. So, so, um, the state then permitted, um, at times, uh, permitted the media, the labor newspapers to report on workers' protests against um, these um, foreign-owned companies. FDI stands for Foreign Direct Investment. So, um, it, it, to me, it, it's very ideologically um, um, based. Um, and I demonstrated that with the Free Trend case, which is a very important case in Chapter 5, um, Strikes in FDI Factories. Um, so the free trend case uh, is very important because it basically raised um, as a result of tremendous, tremendous class moment of um, thousands, dozens of thousands of workers um, in, 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 in three main workers in this um, um, Lingchung EPZ, export processing zones, which um, won the workers of 40% increase in minimum wage. Um, recall that um, the minimum wage was frozen seven years before that, and it took place in 2005. So, um, so um, in this case, um, the two class moments, the December 2005 minimum wage strike, which gave rise to the victory of 40% increase in minimum wage, and subsequently the 2008 strike, another big class moment um, in which workers um, took to the street, and fought and um, got the attention of the, the media and the government, who would then um, institutionalize inflation adjustment every year for the workers um, after that. Um, so, um, in this in this case, um, let's focus on the two thousand and five um, momentous case um, to win this um, annual. Minimum wage increase uh, broke basically the the the, the, the freeze um, seven years before that. Um, cultural factor, cultural identity uh, factors play a very important role. So I I, I had a great fortune to interview um, um, the two migrant workers from the central 
Um, backtrack just a little bit. Um, Lingchung EPC, Export Processing Zone, is in the middle of Ho Chi Minh City. And in that zone, um, a lot of poor migrants from the north of Vietnam and central of Vietnam um, migrate to work and stay near there. So um, I went to their um, um, rental places and talked to these two wonderful um, women from Quang Nam, which is a um, central province, um, who rented rooms there. And um, it was a hub of... Um, a hub for migrant workers there. So um, um, I met them in 2008, but they they showed me um, photos that they took um, on the um, strike slogans and graffiti drawn on the walls of the women's toilet um, from two strikes, the 2005 minimum wage uh, strike and the 2008 inflation, inflation adjustment strike. So language like this um, would tell you uh, the significance of, um, of, of, of class and also the significance of law. So, for example, um, one, one photo showed, um, um, graffiti, um, saying like, wage like this, how can we live? Everyone, let's go on strike. Um, so it, 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 it evokes the idea of collectivity. Everyone, we, um, 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 it's a sense of, a sense of collective action. All of us have to go on strike. We have to go on strike. Um, I also found in some of the graffitis the language of law. For example, let's demand the rights and benefits for ourselves. And that really um, refers to or harks back to the, um, the 1996 Labor Code, which allows workers to strike. Um, for your listeners, um, Take a look at chapter 14. I mean, not my book, but in the labor code, um, chapter 14. And I discussed that in chapter three. Um, talks about, um, how workers are sanctioned or allowed to, to, to strike. So an, another slogan and another, another, um, 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 graffiti saying that, um, 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 referring to the household registration law, which requires a kind of a living wage. Higher than a minimum wage. So, so in a sense, um, in, in the documents that I, that I can gather on a first-hand basis, um, the, the class language is very clear, which harks back to the kind of a Marxist type protest. Um, and also the law language, um, which also very prominent in, in these, um, graffitis. How do workers get information about these laws and how can you say a little more about how they mobilize around law and why it matters and something about what goes on in the making of a claim, whether it's successful or not? Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, in, in, in looking at over 100 years of labor history, labor um, activism in, in Vietnam, I, I, um, I can clearly see a trend dating back to the French colonial rule, um, when um, peasants, um, peasant workers, the, the brown-shirted workers, as I mentioned in Chapter 2, um, already then they appealed to um, the legal systems um, um, and state institutions um, that governed them to uh, demand justice and, and the right to strike. And, 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 and for better treatment and respect. So, for example, um, during the uh, French colonial um, um, era, workers um, n- knew how to use evidence to back up their claims. Um, they appealed to contract laws. Um, um, and the first progressive labor code introduced in 1937 and 1938. Um, so way back then, they already used the law. And in the 60s and early 70s, um, in the south of Vietnam or in the Republic of Vietnam before the fall of Saigon, um, workers invoked laws regarding free trade unions. Um, back then, between between uh, 54 and 75, um, there was freedom of association. There was freedom of uh, labor unions. There, there, there are many, 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 such a vibrant scene in, 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 in unionism in, 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 in the south of Vietnam, unlike now. There's only one. But so back then, 
there were laws regarding free trade unions, the right to strike, and even the protections uh, for strikers. Um, the Eagle Battery um, case I mentioned to you earlier um, talked about how these um, progressive Catholic um, activists and priests um, um, uh, made use of these laws to protect um, the strikers. Up to the present day, um, um, under this uh, uh, one-party state um, socialist um, regime, um, workers, too, also refer to the laws um, to protect um, their rights, and, and they use the media to help them. Okay, um, and 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 the role of the media is incredibly, incredibly important in all of the strikes that I mentioned throughout the chapters. Um, so workers use evidence. Workers spread the word in uh, in 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 the dorm rooms and rental places. Uh, workers appeal to the media to help them out. Um, workers also um, got to know the law from. Um, dedicated um, local labor um, union reps. Um, um, I mentioned this one case of um, this um, this um, union rep. Um, his name is Vu in Hoc Mon District in um, the south of Vietnam, um, who was really wonderful, wonderful in empowering the workers uh, by telling them how to file the claims and um, basically helping them. This is basically the case of Hai Min. Um, uh, one of the cicada factories um, um, in the south of Vietnam. So just to, 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 to summarize um, uh, in response to your question about how do they get to know um, the law and how do they um, learn from, you know, uh, from each other. Basically, they learn through um, word of mouth um, in their rental places. They learn from the labor union representatives. They um, get help from the media. And one last thing, they also learn from legal aid center, like the Dong Nai um, Center um, in the south of Vietnam, um, with the help from Oxfam, a Belgium um, solidarity. So there's, um, we begin to see um, a very important role of um, the global civil society in um, in labor organizing in Vietnam. A couple of times you've referred to cicada factories. I have to ask what they are, otherwise listeners okay. will be confused. I presume they're not making small insects. Right. Okay. So um, um, cicada factories. Okay. That 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 is um, the topic for um, chapter um, six. Um, the fight. The fights of um, workers in private factories and and underground uh, factories. So, cicada factories are essentially um, footloose factories, and these cases continue to plague Vietnam, continue to plague Vietnamese labor unions and and um, workers um, for decades. So, um, why cicada? They 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 um, they earn their name based on the perception that modern global capitalists morph and flee like a cicada, like an insect, um, that is shedding its skin and flying away. Um, in, 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 in this adaptation to, um, to um, the Vietnamese case, um, these factory owners um, acting as predators, um, they abandoned the factories they emptied out their factory machinery. By the way, most of the factory um, machinery um, are rental um, equipment. So, um, so when they 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 fled the factories, not paying workers back wages, not paying workers um, social benefits, insurance, they basically turned the factories into empty shells to escape responsibilities to workers. So that's why that's why I, I I call them cicada factories, footloose, and 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 there's so many cases um, that I um, cited in my book, um, the high men um, struggle um, between 2005 and 2007 um, is a wonderful um, representative case um, that that we invite your your listeners to to read, and it also um, in that case I also um, connect. To a very interesting um, U.S. case in um, Chicago, it's um, it's called um, um, Windows and Doors. A similar a similar uh, phenomenon, um, you know, um, capitalists um, fleeing um, uh, uh, 
emptying out, hollowing out the factories and, 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 and leaving workers stranded behind. Have the trends from the 1990s and 2000s that you set out in the book continued up to the present day? I, I know you're still following events in Vietnam, so maybe you can speak to some of the more recent events and relate them to the contents of your book. Yeah, so um, the, the, there are just so many issues in my book that I raised, but, but I, I would like to, um, um, to, to focus on two major triggers um, that, that I find um, um, connected to um, current labor unrest um, in, in, in the 21st century. Um, the one thing, the, 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 the one, the one trigger is still the minimum wage, um, issue. Okay. Um, so I mentioned the free trend, um, um, uh, glass moments in 2005 and 2008. So 2005, um, gave workers huge victory when 40,000 workers, um, uh, took to the street to, to, to fight in Lingchung EPZ. Um, which then spread to you know other factories um, there in, in 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 Ho Chi Minh City. Um, that was a huge victory with fantastic um, support from the um, uh, local labor media. But now, um, last year, just last year, um, twenty fifteen, there was a huge debate on um, on on what to raise. Uh, what is the 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 the, um, uh, the percentage um, of increase? Uh, for the minimum wage to be applied um, in this year, uh, 2016. And um, um, backtrack a little bit to 2013. The National Wage Council was uh, formed um, uh, supposedly to replace, um, you know, um, indirect and separate consultation between the government and, um, and um, chambers of commerce and parties in, 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 in the private sector. Supposedly to streamline all of those um, private um, interest and influence, um, it, it, it sounds fair on paper, but in reality, um, it seems to me that it, it the National Wage Council gives the state and management more power at the negotiating table, and and why I am saying so, and this is um, this uh, I discuss a lot more. Um, in my upcoming um, chapter in the um, in the edited volume um, on um, handbook of contemporary Vietnam that's coming out this year, and just just to summarize my argument here is that um, um, the the end result of this debate in 2015 gave rise to the smallest increase of minimum wage effective this year is only 12.4 percent as opposed to 40 percent in 2005 when workers took to the street and it between you know between 2005 and 10 years later um, 2015 it's a, an erosion of the minimum wage increase um, down to 2012.4 which is the lowest so my argument is that there is an erosion of um, VGCL, the Vietnamese General Confession of Labor at the negotiating table because of the increasing influence of management represented by the Vietnamese Chamber of Commerce and Industry um, at that table. So that that that's one trend, and that trend is not good because this kind of a minimum wage policy is not helping the workers. It perpetuates the cycle of poverty. Um, um, I will invite your listeners to read the um, the four tier system. I, I don't have time to to to, to uh, develop that here, but that four tiered minimum wage policy perpetuate um, uh, uh, the working poor in Vietnam for generations. The poor will continue to be poor and poorer, and and their children can never can never um, advance. Um, the second trigger is the connection between the minimum wage policy and the social security benefits for workers. Last year, I wrote a, um, a short article um, in, um, I believe, um, the New Mandela. It's an online piece. Um, it's entitled um, Small Victory, Systemic Problems 
It is about a strike of over 90,000 workers um, that took place in, um, in March of, of last year. So um, please take a look at that to, to, to see basically um, that that strike was against the, um, the, the, um, the social insurance policy that was supposed to be implemented beginning of this year to not allow the workers to take out one lump sum social security. Um, before their retirement age. Okay. Um, young migrant workers after 10 years working on the assembly line can no longer work because they, they, they were squeezed to the, to the last drop. So they would like to, to, to get out one lump sum, just like a form of saving to bring home and use that as seed money to invest in some kind of, uh, of business venture to make ends meet at home. But when they were told that they were not able to do that um, last last year, last March, 90,000 of them went out on strike. And thanks to that um, huge class moment, the government, um, the government basically um, retracted it and um, postponed the implementation of that, of that clause. So workers, now can still take out one lump sum um, if they so choose or wait until their retirement age, um, um, 55 for women and 60 for men and, and, and get their, their monthly pension. So, so um, um, in my latest piece, my argument is that um, there's an intimate connection between um, annual raise in minimum wage and social security benefits for workers um, because management main concern is not so much the minimum wage because most of them already paid higher than minimum wage. Minimum wage, by the way, is not livable wage at all. But management main concern is about having to pay higher social insurance premiums um, based on higher gross salary. Okay. And that they have to start doing in 2018, and they don't want to do that. That's why they keep on dragging, dragging their feet, and that's why they keep on dragging, um, raising the minimum wage to the lowest possible line. And um, and um, um, they had this practice of keeping two accounting books for years, one on one for taxation, basically based on the total wage, um, which include. In which, which would include minimum wage and all types of allowances to make ends meet for workers. And the other one, the other book is for the lower, um, uh, uh amounts for, to, to, to contribute social insurance to, uh, to the state fund. So those are the two triggers that I, that, 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 that I, that I see continue to be the trends, um, um, informed by the arguments made by my, by my book. One is the ongoing um, 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 significance of the minimum wage struggle, which is not livable. And the second thing is a connection between the minimum wage and the social benefits to workers that would affect not just this generation of workers, but, but their children and their children's children. And essentially the, the, the Vietnamese society, the Vietnamese government will have to subsidize the global capitalists to pay for these workers. In their old age, um, for their health care, for their for their uh, unemployment insurances, so on and so forth. Thanks for that summation, and you've also pointed to a number of other pieces you've written that people can take a look at if they're interested to learn more. Is there another book on the horizon? Do you have uh, an, another large work in in progress that we can also look forward to? Yes, uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked that because. Um, um, in fact, um, I um, am working, my ongoing um, manuscript right now is, um, is again, I'm looking at the issue of labor resistance, but now across borders. I'm looking at um, uh, migrants from Vietnam um, going to work in Malaysia um, um, and return and how they fight. Um, um, how resistance takes place across borders. So essentially, I'm, I'm focusing not just on the King and the Hua um, ethnic groups, but I'm looking at three other um, ethnicities. So I'm, I'm also looking at the Cham Muslims, 
um, the Khmer and the Hooray. And um, I'm, I'm exploring how they temporarily migrate from Vietnam to Malaysia for work and return and how they and their families resist against indebtedness, indebtedness, you know, because they have to take loans to go to work in Malaysia, which is um, low-paying, low-skilled um, um, labor destination, if you will. And the kind of vulnerabilities um, that are created by labor export policies of the, the Vietnamese government. So um, uh, uh, I'm looking at, um, at transnational migration. Um, I'm looking at third space. I'm looking at how these uh, five ethnicities um, fight for their survival. So um, this, this work um, also relied on um, more than eight years of um, fieldwork materials um, on the ground, interviewing with these five uh, different ethnicities, uh, both in Vietnam and in Malaysia. Well, you certainly have to keep us informed as to when that comes out, because it sounds like another a very rich and important contribution that you'll be making with that work. And John, Absolutely. Not, Angie, yeah. I'd like to thank you very much for speaking with me today about Ties That Bind, Cultural Identity, Class and Law in Vietnam's Labour Resistance. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And if you have time, do check out some of the other great podcasts on offer via the New Look New Books Network. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the chin of the boat. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the chin of the boat. Monkey!